Heavenly Father, we ask that you would give us understanding of this, that we would see you exalted, that we would know the exceeding greatness of your power toward us who believe, according to the working of your mighty power, which you worked in Christ when you raised him from the dead. Lord, I pray that as we see you for who you are, we would also see ourselves for who we are, our sin, our wickedness, our rebellion. We would confess it, repent of it, turn from it, and we would trust in Jesus Christ. And if we've made that decision to follow you, if you have called us, we've heeded that call, and we've responded in faith, we ask that it would not be to, to apathy, that we would not respond in, as if we were dead, but that we would respond as those made alive in Jesus Christ. Pray that you would empty us of ourselves and fill us with your spirit, the spirit of truth. You would guide us by your spirit. You would convict by your spirit. You would enable by your spirit and that we would respond in faith to all that you show, to all that you reveal, and we would step out in faith and obedience to you. Lord, our desire is to see you work in might and power in this place, in these people, but also in the world around us. That the message of Jesus Christ would not be something we keep to ourselves, but that we would broadcast, we would spread, we would not only believe, but act as if we believe. That we would not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're going to get a crash course on the final essential of our faith this morning. And it is good because it pertains to our purpose and our hope. The title is, this morning, The Resurrection. What we've been doing is we've been looking through the essentials of the faith that we affirm and asking why we affirm them and what difference do they make. I want to present three things this morning. Fairly simple, fairly straightforward. The resurrection is certain. The resurrection is a cause for joy. And the resurrection is a cause for fear. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I will be referring to it just in passing and in touching, but if you have any uncertainty about the certainty of the resurrection, I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have any uncertainty about the joy of the resurrection, I would encourage you to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15. The absence of fear in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 says that the resurrection is not an issue of fear to those who are in Jesus Christ, but it is an issue of fear to those who are not in Jesus Christ. The statement reads, this we affirm, the resurrection of both the saved and the lost. They that are saved unto the resurrection of life, and they that are lost unto the resurrection of damnation. Certainty of the resurrection, joy of the resurrection, and fear because of the resurrection. Time and time again within the word of God, it speaks of the resurrection. It is assumed to be true more often than it is stated categorically just as a topic. As a matter of fact, Jesus Christ and Paul both refuted the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They both refuted them and proved that Christ would rise. At that time, they were proving it stating the fact of the resurrection. As a matter of fact, if you look in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, you don't have a presentation of an argument for the resurrection. You have an argument from the resurrection. And there's a bit of a difference there. An argument 
for the resurrection would just simply be putting out truths that we believe about it. And we'll see that within the Word of God as well. But you actually have an argument for the resurrection from the resurrection, the fact that Jesus Christ is risen from the grave. Paul presents it actually in a question and answer kind of style. He says, some say that there's no resurrection of the dead. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then you are still in your sins. He takes it as a fact that the resurrection has happened because Jesus Christ rose from the grave. You can see that starting in verse 12 is his argument. I want to focus a little bit on the last few verses of it, and we'll come to that in just a moment. So just keep your fingers there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If, um, if you're tuning me out, you can be tuning me out by reading 1 Corinthians 15, and you're going to hear what I'm going to say anyways. Jesus Christ himself is the resurrection, and he was raised from the dead. We see there in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, at the very beginning of it, Paul says, this is the foremost thing. This is the thing of greatest importance, that Jesus Christ was died, that he was buried, and that he rose again, and that he was seen by many witnesses. This is the central aspect of the gospel. This is the gospel. This is what Paul proclaimed. Jesus Christ died for our sins, raised in victory, and now ascended to the right hand of God the Father, where he intercedes for us. The resurrection, it is certain. Paul, in defending himself before the governor of Caesarea, in the midst of his argument in Acts chapter 24, verse 15, we see this statement which shows that Paul understood that the resurrection was true, that all people would be resurrected, and that the Jews accepted it as well. In his defense, he says, I have hope in God, which they themselves also accept, this is the Jews, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, both of the just and the unjust. The resurrection is for all people, but there will be a resurrection to life and a res- resurrection to condemnation or to death, if you want to look at it that way, to damnation. But it is certain, regardless of whether you are just or unjust, as Paul says, that you will be resurrected. It is certain and it is all-inclusive. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, perhaps one of the most well-known verses on this subject, though it doesn't even use the word resurrection, says, and it is appointed for men to die once, but after this, the judgment. The resurrection is certainly implied there. Otherwise, how could man be judged without his, or after his death? And it is clear that all will be judged. The resurrection is certain, and it is all-inclusive. And there are other verses which speak to the certainty of it. Now, there are verses within the Word of God which speak to the resurrection of those to life and the resurrection of those to damnation, and there are a few which speak of both. Primarily, it speaks of resurrection to life, which is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is why there is no bad news in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in that sense, because it is speaking to those who are in Jesus Christ, who when they, they come to that resurrection day, it will be a day of complete joy. But there are passages which speak of resurrection both to life and to death. Turn to John chapter 5 as well. John chapter 5, verse 24 to 30. I will come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, I promise. In the passage in John chapter 5, we hear Christ preaching to the general public. Uh, he was not speaking just for the disciples or just for the apostles because in John chapter 5, verse 18, he says, Therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. So he is preaching here to the general public, specifically to the Jews. 
and subsequently to every person who reads or hears these words. John chapter 5, verse 24 to 30. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation or into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. Christ says, I can of myself do nothing, as I hear I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own will, but the will of the Father who sent me. Every person will be resurrected. We have a resurrection of everlasting life, and we have a resurrection of judgment. We see clearly in verse 28 and 29 that all who are in the grave will hear his voice and come forth. That is, every single person who has died, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. What is the good or evil which rewards or condemns? We see from verse 24, it is believing on the Messiah or not believing on the Messiah. Verse 24, there it says, he who believes in him who sent Christ, that is God the Father, has everlasting life. That is a way of saying he who believes that Christ is the Christ sent from God, that he is the Messiah, whoever believes has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There is a resurrection. It is coming. It is certain that everyone born will stand before the righteous judge and will give account for themselves. Those who have trusted Christ enter into eternal life, and those who have not, into eternal condemnation. Matthew chapter 25 speaks similarly, and you probably know this story. It's a story of dividing between the goats and the sheep. Now, this is specifically speaking of national judgment, as Christ is Lord of the earth, but at the end you have the same sentence. Those who do good inherit the kingdom prepared before the foundation of the world. Those who do evil, Christ says to them, depart from me, you cursed, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. This principle is clearly seen throughout Scripture. The day of resurrection is coming. We will stand before God. Then the righteous judge will judge righteously, either to condemn or to reward. Even the Old Testament shows that principle, that promise. Daniel chapter 12, verse 2. At that time, Michael shall stand up. This is speaking of the end of times. The great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble. That's speaking about the great tribulation, such as was never before in the nation, even to that time. And at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone who is found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. There is a resurrection coming or an awakening coming, and for some it will be to everlasting life and to others, shame and contempt. Isn't that what Christ said in the great passage about laying down your lives to follow him? In Matthew chapter 16, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself. Take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. Even John chapter 3, we read verse 16, and we like that, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but what? Have everlasting life. And what does it say right after that? For God did not send his Son to the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. But he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We will all stand before God and give account. He is just. He will not allow sin to go unpunished or faith unrewarded. So having determined that the resurrection is certain, there is reward and condemnation handed out in that point, what does it look like? As I said, there's two responses to it. One is Joy, and one is fear. First Corinthians is the one about joy. In verse 42, it says, So also is the resurrection of the dead. This is to believers, those who have been made alive in Jesus Christ. It says, The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. It continues in verse 52. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption. This mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The resurrection for those who are in Jesus Christ is a cause for joy. All that is of sin will be dealt with. All will be made new. This body which is broken, which is still under the curse, the effect of sin, will be made as God intended it to be, set free, liberated, incorrupt, immortal. Imagine that. We've talked about this. We've actually dealt with the theme of the resurrection four times, I think, in this this year already. It's central. It is essential. Some people wonder, well, what difference does it make? Is it actually an essential of the faith? If it's not an essential of the faith, then your faith is without basis. If the resurrection is not true, there is no point in being a believer. That's what Paul says there in 1 Corinthians. He says, if the resurrection of Christ is not true, you're still in your sins. And you're the most pitiable person if you're trusting in Jesus Christ and it's just for this life. No, it's for beyond this life. It is our cause. It is one of our causes of joy. We will be made like him for we shall see him as he is, First John tells us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ and our eventual resurrection. Now, in having said that the resurrection is a cause for joy, I don't want you to get this idea that you will not still give an account before Jesus Christ. In the resurrection, you will still stand before Jesus Christ. It's just not at the great white throne judgment. That's for non-believers. That's for those who have not trusted. But it's at the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ. You will still stand and give account, not for whether you have believed, because only those who have believed will actually before the judge, stand before the judgment seat of Christ. But we see in 1 Corinthians as well what it talks about, you have invested yourself in things. Do the things that matter or things that don't matter? Wood, hay, stubble, gold, silver, and precious stones. Which one is it? All of these will be consumed, those which are not gold, silver, and precious stones. And there is not speaking about your salvation. It's speaking to the one who is in Jesus Christ, but still saying that we will give account 
for what we have done with what God has given us, we will be held accountable. Not speaking of our standing in Christ, but speaking of reward or loss of reward. So what do we do then? If the resurrection is a cause for joy to those who are in Jesus Christ, practical application, make sure you're in Jesus Christ. Be certain of your salvation. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 8 to 10, We are confident, yes, well pleased, rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Therefore, we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. That's the second thing. Response to the resurrection and our coming resurrection, if we are in Jesus Christ, make sure we're in Jesus Christ. Be certain of your salvation. And secondly, live well-pleasing to him. It says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So be certain that we live well-pleasing to him, that whatever we do and whatever we have done is well-pleasing to him. There is joy and confidence in this. There's joy and confidence even in our response to the certainty of the resurrection of those who are in Christ unto life. Jesus is the only way of salvation, and you are secure in him if you have trusted him. Christianity is the only religion where God does all the work in saving us, then equips us for every good work, then rewards us for that work. That's the joy of the resurrection for the believer. This is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, 1 John chapter 5. And life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. So our response to the resurrection of life, if you've trusted Jesus Christ, make sure that you are in Jesus Christ. And secondly, make sure that you are pleasing to him. Ensure that you are, by his enabling, his equipping, pleasing to him. Believe and continue to believe. First John chapter 5 tells us. Then your resurrection will be fully joyful. Resurrection is certain. The resurrection for the one who is trusted in Jesus Christ. For the forgiveness of sins and everlasting life, the resurrection is joyful. The third point is not as happy. The resurrection is a cause for fear. This is a terrible reality. There will be many who have chosen the broad path that leads to destruction. And when they stand before the righteous judge, it will be to condemnation. John chapter 3 verse 36 says, He who believes in the Son has everlasting life. And he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. What a powerful statement. He who does not believe in the Son shall not see life, but be under God's wrath. When the non-believer stands before God in the resurrection, it will be to face a sentence of condemnation. It will be a resurrection unto damnation. Every person ever born is born in sin, sins actively as well. This sin is an offense against the holy God. God must, in righteousness, judge sin. He must, in justice, condemn sin. Sin cannot go unpunished. Otherwise, it would deny the very character of God. For the one who chooses to continue to rebel against God and reject the free gift of salvation offered in Jesus Christ, to reject the grace and mercy of God, there will be eternal consequence. Each passage that speaks of resurrection to life and to death declares that truth. 
the resurrection for those who are not in Jesus Christ, who have not accepted his grace and his mercy, will be a resu- resurrection unto condemnation. John chapter 5, verse 29, the resurrection of condemnation. Matthew 25, 41, depart from me, Christ says, to those who do not believe in him, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. Daniel 12, verse 2, shame and everlasting contempt. This is the resurrection of damnation. Matthew chapter 13, 41 to 42, the Son of Man will send out his angel and they will gather together all the kingdom, all things that offend, and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8 and 9, describing God's vengeance, it says, on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, these shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Are you getting the picture there? There is a resurrection of condemnation, a resurrection of damnation. If in doubt of any of those passages, perhaps the strongest passage, the clearest passage on that is Revelation chapter 20. In verse 11 it says, Then I saw a great white throne. This is the great white throne judgment, when all who have not trusted in Jesus Christ will give account. And him who sat on it, from whom, from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, that is all those who were separated from God, not just physically dead, but those who were spiritually dead. I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and the books were opened. Notice it is plural there, the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. The great white throne judgment. This is the place of God's judgment against unbelievers, not the judgment seat of Christ. The dead, small and great, are all those who are spiritually dead. As we see from Ephesians, as we see from Galatians, even referring to us, it says, you once were dead in trespasses and sins, but now have been made alive in Jesus Christ. Here it is speaking of those who have never been made alive in Jesus Christ. Spiritually separated, spiritually dead. They're separated from God by their sin. They are already sentenced to that separation, but here in their resurrection, they are sentenced for what they have done with what God has given them. They are judged according to their works. There are none here who are in the book of life. The book of life there that is open proves that these individuals' names are not in it. These are all the unredeemed, and they are all cast, it says, into the lake of fire. Now, regardless of whether the lake of fire is literal or figurative, is irrelevant to this point. Unrepentant sinners are sentenced to eternal damnation, to eternal separation from God. Those who have chosen to reject God will suffer the consequences of their choice. God turns them over to the consequence of their choice. This is no light thing. Resurrection to life is incredible. It's joyful. It is our source of hope and of peace and of comfort in this world of sorrow and trouble. But the resurrection of condemnation, that should be the believer's cause of sorrow. Because we recognize that there will be many who choose that path. Many who do not yet know or or will never know the love of God as demonstrated in Jesus Christ. 
It is no light thing. Sorrowful, painful reality. And yet it is true. And if you are one who maybe questions the eternality of it, I want to challenge you with the truth this morning. Maybe you say, but God wouldn't do that eternally. Maybe it's just a period of time. The same word that is used for eternal damnation is also used for eternal life. And if you deny the eternality of condemnation, you end up also denying the eternality of life in Jesus Christ. You can't have it just the way you want it. It's eternal. We are told to look with eyes that are spiritual upon spiritual things. To look not on things of the earth. We are told to look with, in a sense, eternal eyes. To see that which lays, lies before us. And I pray that for your own life, you are able to do that. You are doing that. That you have seen the grace and mercy of God as demonstrated in Jesus Christ on the cross of Christ. And so your eyes look, look now to that eternal resurrection of life. But I pray that even as you're doing that, your eyes are also able to look, in a sense, to that eternal place of condemnation. And that as you look upon that, your heart is broken by it. Not broken in the sense of thinking, God, why would you do this? You're not fair, you're not just, you're not right, because God is fair and just and right. But broken because we realize the desperate wickedness and the sinfulness of mankind and their desperate need of a Savior. In light of the resurrection of condemnation, what do we do? What do we do? We've said in light of the resurrection of life, we make sure we are in Jesus Christ. Be certain. It's possible to be certain. He's promised it, that all who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved. Believe him. And then, live accordingly. That is, live pleasing, act pleasing, walk pleasing to him. But what about the resurrection of condemnation? What do we do in light of that? Warn people. Speak truth. Tell them of even the judgment to come. We shy away from that topic. Why do you think that topic is there? Why is it that the Holy Spirit will convict of sin and of righteousness and of judgment? That last one especially. Why will the Holy Spirit convict of judgment? Because, it says a little bit later, Satan is judged. And who are those in Satan? It is all those who have not trusted in Jesus Christ. There's a reason he convicts of judgment. And there's a reason, and I'm not saying that the first message you want to take to this person that you are trying to lead to Jesus Christ, that the first thing you want to come to them and say is you're going to hell. Some people, they may need that. But I wouldn't advise it. It's probably not the best tactic. But we shy away from judgment when the Holy Spirit is the one who convicts of judgment. Why? Because when they realize that judgment is coming, they may turn to the Savior, to the Redeemer. There is a reality. There is a reality of heaven and hell. We need not only to trust, but to speak to those who have not yet come to trust so that their lives would be spared from that reality of hell. Warn them, speak the truth to them, tell them of judgment to come, tell them of the grace of God that will save them from that judgment and not only save them from judgment, but bring them into right relationship with Jesus Christ, which they were designed for, which you were created for. That's what Paul did. Paul says, 
1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 19 to 22. He says, For though I am free from all men, in other words, he didn't owe anybody anything. He says, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win the more. He subjected himself to others to win them to Jesus Christ. To the Jews I became a Jew, that I might win Jews. To those who were under the law, I became as under the law, that I might win those who were under the law. To those who were without the law, as without the law. Not being without the law toward God, but under law toward Christ, you understand? That I might win those who are without the law. To the weak I became as weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. That's what he says. I have become all things to all men, whatever it takes, not sinning, not stepping outside of God's grace here, but I have done everything, I have become all things to all men, that I might by all means save some. Now we know that we don't save individuals, that God does, it's the work of the Holy Spirit. But are we intent, are we action, I was going to say actional, I don't know if that's a word or not, but are we intentional on this? Becoming all things to all men that we might by all means save some. That's kind of what Paul implored Timothy to do as well. He says to Timothy, I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a sacred charge. That is a holy charge. I charge you before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead. Amazing he put that in there. I give you this charge in light of Jesus Christ who will judge everyone. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. But that tells us how we're supposed to do it. It's not just going around telling people you're going to hell. It's going with all longsuffering and teaching. But still, it is preaching the word. In season, out of season. Whether it's a great opportunity or whether it's a lousy opportunity. Whether it's one that you would choose or one you would rather run away from. To be ready to preach the word, to convince, to draw, to rebuke, that's to correct, to exhort, to challenge, to stir up with all long-suffering and teaching. We must do all we can to reach as many as we can while God gives us time to reach them. The topic of the resurrection is not a small one. It is a cause for joy. It is a cause for fear. I think we have too small a view of it at times. I think we have too small a view of damnation and too small a view of salvation as well. That we don't think on these things. We don't think about what damnation means. We don't really spend time dwelling on eternal separation from God. Nor do we spend a lot of time thinking on eternal unity in Jesus Christ. Eternal union with Christ. We tend to underemphasize both. I tend to underemphasize both. I tend to forget about them often. Don't we do that? When's the last time, and it wasn't on a Sunday morning, that you thought about the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the implications that it has on the eternal damnation of other people? And that's a rhetorical question. I don't actually want an answer to that. When is the last time, aside from when you were listening to a sermon, you saw your neighbor as a soul that was headed for heaven or hell? When's the last time I did? It's not just a case of downplaying them, is it? So often it's a case of ignoring the reality 
the truth. Jesus Christ is Lord of all. And one day, every individual ever born will stand before the righteous judge who will judge righteously unto life or unto damnation. Be sure you are in Christ and live pleasing to him. That's our takeaway from resurrection of life if you're in Jesus Christ. If you're not in Jesus Christ, you need to be in him. His grace is still available today. His mercy is still poured out today. He is willing and just to save your soul. But in regards to takeaway for those who are believers, in regards to the resurrection of condemnation or damnation, don't waste your life. Don't. Stop. Whatever that looks like. It seems like believers are so often people that are more intent on watching paint dry or grass grow or whatever else. doesn't matter. We forget to have an eternal perspective, to be truly ambassadors for Jesus Christ, to share with those who are lost and need him. I pray that we will have this sentiment towards unbelievers as expressed by Charles Spurgeon. If then you will be damned, let me have this one thing as consolation for your misery, that you are not damned for the lack of calling after, you are not lost for the lack of weeping after, and not lost for the lack of praying after. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we've considered, even just briefly, the matter of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our resurrection, the resurrection that is coming and that is certain and is universal, that everyone born of this earth will be raised again to stand before the righteous judge. As we've examined that, Lord, I pray you would stir up our hearts, not with fear, unless we haven't trusted you, then I pray you would put that fear in us and not remove it until we do. For the one who is trusting you this morning, I pray you would cause us to delight in all that you have laid up in store for those who trust in you. And even as we are in that attitude, that emotion of delight and joy, I pray that you would still be breaking our hearts for those who do not know you. I pray that it would not just be platitudes. I pray that this message would not just be full of cliches, or cliches would stick in our mind. Lord, that, that would not be the reality. Give us eyes to see. Give us the eyes of Jesus Christ. Lord, cause us to reach out, to plead with, to convincingly direct and correct and rebuke and reprove and all of these things that we're called to, to point to Jesus Christ. Give us love and compassion for the lost. Give us hearts that are broken for them. Not just because of the fear we have for them of condemnation, but also because we have seen the wonder of Jesus Christ. And we would be so delighting in you, we would desire that everyone would so delight in you. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.